Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture this morning comes from a strange prophetic text in the Old Testament in Isaiah. It's chapter 44, verses 13 through 20. A carpenter stretches out a string, marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with carving tools, and marks it with a compass. He makes it into a human form like a splendid human to live in a temple. He cuts down cedars for himself or chooses a cypress or oak, selecting from all the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain makes it grow. It becomes suitable to burn for humans. So he takes some of the wood and warms himself. He kindles fire and bakes bread. He fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of it he burns in the fire. On that half he roasts and eats meat, and he is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm watching the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, into his idol. And he bows down, worships, and prays to it, saying, Save me, for you are my god. They don't know or comprehend, for their eyes can't see and their minds can't comprehend. He doesn't think and has no knowledge or understanding to think. Half of it I burned in the fire and I baked bread on its coals and roasted meat and ate. Should I make the rest into something detestable? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He's feeding on ashes. His deluded mind has led him astray. He can't save himself and say, isn't this thing in my hand a lie? The word of God for the people of God. And now God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Vance asked me to preach again and I said, sure. And then he told me what I was going to be preaching about. And I said, okay. Uh, He said that I'm going to be preaching on the consumer trap. And I said, care to say more? And he said no and walked away. And then uh, I asked him what the text was. And he said this this Isaiah text, um, a text that is in 2nd Isaiah. There are three components of Isaiah. Um, At this point in the history of the people of Jerusalem, um, they are again being um, dominated by a foreign power. Um, They are living in diaspora, and uh, they are living amongst folks who are worshiping gods and what um, Isaiah would call pagan idols, um, like folks named Marduk, who was a god of the folks who were oppressing um, 
the Israelites. Uh, And now I need to make a connection between that text and the consumer trap and what we might find ourselves in in the 21st century. And I didn't really know where to begin. It's kind of a huge thing that we find ourselves in. And I found myself thinking about um, the sermon series that we've been spending time in for the past month, uh, which is um, hospitality. How can we practice hospitality And when we're talking about hospitality, I, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron. I'm the director of New Ministries. Um, When I think about hospitality, I often think about how we can keep up, how we can keep up with the hotel industry or other industries or other churches that have real streamlined hospitality services to make sure that when people come here, they're taken care of. It's like taking good care of a a customer and... um, I recognize that that thinking is limited because insofar as the church tries to um, treat something like hospitality and compare it to uh, a world of uh, marketing demographics, the church will never keep up. In the same way that in the 90s when um, the popular Christian music scene was coming on into the fore for the first time, um, uh, what was the name of the band, the Jesus Freaks folks? Yeah, DC Talk ultimately could not put up, could not keep up with um, the influence of bands featured on MTV because MTV was pouring millions of dollars into marketing to figure out what youth uh, specifically, what sort of music they were into, what sorts of questions they were asking, what they wanted. Um, So I, as the director of New Ministries, when I think about hospitality, I have to pivot from this sense of trying to keep up, trying to put out a product, something that is attractive for folks who come to our church. And I noticed as I was paying attention to Vance preaching that there was sort of a common theme that stretched um, the weeks of uh, of each of our time gathering together to think about biblical hospitality and the undergirding theme of our preaching was this idea, this fundamental idea of Christianity called Imago Dei. Imago Dei. Can anybody remember what Imago Dei means? I'm asking, actually asking for for some participation. Imago Dei. Somebody who's had a seminary education. Image of God. Image of God, exactly. So, we say that we practice hospitality because each person that comes to First United Methodist Church of Orlando, each person on the streets of Orlando, every person that is, will be, and has been is an image of God. And not only that, the entire created order of the world that we live in is imago Dei, image of God. It reflects God's uh, love and participation and divinity sanctity, transcendence. And we see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So the sort of foundational text, one of the foundational texts of the Old Testament is Exodus. This is where the uh, Israelite people got their identity as a people of Yahweh because while they were enslaved in Egypt, Moses came and said to the folks, I ran into this interesting thing that said, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to get you out of this bondage. We're going to get you out of oppression. So they're liberated by Yahweh God and taken into the desert 
for 40 years where they figure out what it means to live as a people outside of slavery. Now, folks who live in the United States have an interesting relationship to slavery. It's built into um, the fabric of the country that we live in. And when we celebrate something like Labor Day weekend, we're making a very specific point about the meaning and significance of work and how a person can be related to work. But, so, they're in Egypt, they're discovering who they are as a people, and this is significant because as a people who have been enslaved, they have to figure out their identity now, how to live together without being under the yoke of a people who are telling them how, who they are and how they're supposed to live. So, figuring out life together was difficult. And the two biggest rules that Yahweh gave for life together was, uh, what? Love your God. That's number one. Number two, immediately after that, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is not um, a mushy-gushy affection for somebody. It is not good feeling about somebody. It's not patting somebody on the back and giving them a bulletin when they come into the church. Love your neighbor as yourself means witness to this fundamental idea of our tradition, imago Dei, meaning that in order to love your God above all else, you must look into your neighbor and not only see yourself, but see your God. So that continues into the New Testament with Jesus Christ. So God says, I'm not sure that we're figuring out what I'm about and I can tell by your witness. I can tell that you're confused about what transcendence is, what divinity is, what sacredness is. So what I'm going to do is become incarnate and show you. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus hangs out with everybody. Jesus hugs people who aren't supposed to be hugged. Has dinner with folks who aren't supposed to, Jesus isn't supposed to have dinner with. And Jesus also says that when you feed the hungry and clothe the poor, when you welcome the stranger and when you subvert systems that contribute to the oppression of Imago Dei, image of God, in your brother and sister, you're doing that to me. Because Imago Dei, Christ is in your eyes and your eyes and my eyes and everybody else's eyes. So that's Imago Dei, image of God reflected in creation, built into creation, stitched into the fabric of our hearts, meaning that care of your soul is inextricable from care of our world, of our life together. Who are you and what are you in a world where we would make a claim like Imago Dei? I'm going to do a quick experiment and then I'll move on. Raise your hand if you're tired. Raise your hand if you have a hard time relaxing. Raise a hand if when you're participating in leisure time, you're still sort of 
in a system or a cycle of consuming something. How often do you feel, raise your hand if you often feel guilty if you're not doing something that feels productive. How many of you feel anxious? How many of you have a hard time sleeping? One of my favorite authors is a, is a, a monk. I, I've brought him up a few times named Thomas Merton. I've been reading his New Seeds of Contemplation. Again, it's a book that had I not read it at a particular time in my life, I wouldn't be standing here with all of you. And in that book, in the third chapter, Thomas Merton writes, so much depends upon our idea of God. So much depends upon our idea of God. Yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. Now, it's important to know that Thomas Merton is speaking from a tradition here. Thomas Merton is a monk in the Catholic tradition, writing in the 60s. So when Thomas Merton writes about uh, humanity, Thomas Merton writes man to refer to humanity. So it's funny that when Thomas Merton writes, no idea of him, however perfect, and pure is adequate to express him as he really is. He's using uh, male pronouns to describe God. But Thomas Merton doesn't believe that God's image is captured by being a man. That's what he's trying to make the point of. The point that Thomas Merton is trying to make is that our idea of God, who we think God is, is evidenced in our lives. Now, if we're singing, how great is our God, I'm going to scream it to the mountains, and I'm going to sing hallelujah, and Vance prays that when you put your faith and your hope in a person like Jesus, your yoke is lifted, what does it mean for all of us who are limited and fallible, and sensitive, and small? What does it mean that when I ask all of us to raise our hands, if you're anxious, if you have a hard time staying still, if you have a hard time being by yourself, what does that show about who our idea of who God is? Now, the text that we read this morning is about idolatry. Idolatry is not a word that we use very frequently anymore in our neck of the woods. At a place like First Church, idolatry is a strange word. We often use other words like oppression or evil. We don't use idolatry because idolatry can sort of feel like a gavel that you're slamming on someone's head. That's idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, we see it in this text. Uh, What we see in the text is the denunciation, the denouncing of the manufacturer, that is, the person who's creating this thing, and worshiper of the image as ignorant, intellectually obtuse. This idea often stated in this kind of polemic, this is a polemic, this is the author of Isaiah saying like, this is what we believe over and against this thing and I'm going to show you that this is why we believe it because this thing is so dumb, basically. The idea is that the worshipers themselves become like the lifeless images 
They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell, hands, but do not feel. And no sound comes from their throats. Then the point of all of these negatives, those who make them are like them. In a word, the image worshiper is caught up in a world of unreality and delusion aptly expressed in the metaphor of herding ashes comparable to herding the wind. Idolatry, when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about the rejection of the worship of false gods. And in the biblical text, you can know false gods by their participation in systems of oppression. And the critique is always placed upon something that is created by us over and against what divinity is. We say that this thing that we've made is the divine. Therefore, in order to make a critique, guys, stay with me, I promise this will, this will come up. In order to make a critique, like saying something is idolatrous, you have to maintain that there is something that is transcendent. There is a divine that we are Confusing with something else. On the screen is an image of uh, Burning Man. I picked it because I thought that it paired well with the text. And it's also interesting because Burning Man, this enormous festival that happens in the desert annually... In Nevada, 80,000 people stream to the middle of the desert to hang out for a weekend. It's happening right now. It happens Labor Day weekend. Tonight, um, they are going to burn an effigy uh, in the temple of Burning Man um, as sort of the end uh, of the weekend together. Um, the temple is what you see the man standing on top of. On the temple throughout the week, it is the most visited building at Burning Man. People go and what they do is they write down what are prayers on the walls of this temple. Their laments, their hopes, their dreams. And then they all gather together at the end of the week and they light it on fire. There's also the image of the man. And the other thing that is interesting about this image in, in relationship to what I want to get to is that there, there is a, a scholar known as Rene Girard. Rene Girard wrote something called Violence in the Sacred. And Rene Girard traces how humanity has used um, scapegoats as a ritualistic uh, symbol. Uh, scapegoats, like in, in the biblical text, literal goats, where people who sinned would invest their iniquity into the goat and then send it out into the wilderness. They were sort of this cathartic event of releasing everything that you've been holding on to so that you can continue to try to love your God and love your neighbor. This image is... Another image, I think, of that sort of event. A gathering of spiritual but not religious people who know that the world that they live in uh, isn't entirely satisfying. And so they consent to living in the desert and they light this effigy on fire 
to say, I need to sort of expunge myself of all of this stuff. The other interesting thing about Burning Man is that it does not work according to a market economy, a capitalistic economy. It works according to a gift economy. So when you go there, you don't buy stuff. You have to trade stuff with folks. The question that we have to ask as Christians, as folks who believe that we have a witness to give to spiritual but not religious people who are gathering in droves to light people on fire, is how do we witness to something like gift economy? Because not everybody can go to Burning Man. The median uh, wage, I think, of somebody who goes is $70,000 a year. So they go and they trade stuff, but in order to get there, you have to spend a lot of money. And on Wednesday, I went to the Christian Service Center for Daily Bread for the first time, and we served 230 folks, which is not even close to how many unhoused people are in Orlando. And they came through, and they grabbed a meal, and it went sort of military style. These people came through the cafeteria and left. And there was a little girl who was there. She was wearing a bandana because it was so hot. Everybody was sweaty and stinky. Some of them were speaking to folks who weren't there. Some of them looked like they hadn't bathed. Many of them looked like they were struggling with addiction. And they walked through this line. And you know what? In a world that says that your value is dependent upon your efficiency and competitiveness and a competitive market, a system where you need to prove over and over again that you can show up to earn a wage and contribute to society, people who can't are no longer imago Dei, no longer image of God. Those people are the lowest of the low. We won't even look at them because we're afraid of their need. We know that if we do, they're going to ask us for something. And it's because they need. And we're afraid of need. Because to admit need means to admit vulnerability. It means to admit that you're small and you're scared, that you're tired, that sometimes you feel like you're not going to make it. And if I look at you and I see your fear, I feel my own. If I look at you and I see your need, I see my own. There's this quote from an article that I read, individuals' diligence and endeavor to adapt themselves to the capitalistic market system of unlimited competition becomes the most important variable that makes it possible for individuals to move up the socioeconomic ladder. That was one sentence. (laughs) Hence, individuals who fall short, who have been implicitly or explicitly regarded as the loser of incompetence in the free market system, lose their self-worth. If all of your self-worth and esteem is invested in how much you consume, how many likes you get, or other quantifiable measures, the desire to simply possess things trumps our ability or capability to make moral connections with the people around us. There should be room in the world for both systems to flourish. This is the guy who founded Burning Man. If they did, they would inform one another. Our image of God is informed by our lives. And the consumer trap, the hard thing about it is that it is unavoidable. 
the idolatry, the making divine of stuff like material goods, stuff like comfort, stuff like ease. It's almost impossible to avoid. So how do we avoid it? Some people escape to the desert if they have the money to do it. And they ritualistically burn a man in a temple where they've spent all of their time together all week. And together in silence, they watch as it burns. And they walk away and they feel like their yoke has been lifted. But then they return after this weekend to their lives. Jesus died not because God required a blood sacrifice. Jesus says, give me all of your fear. Give me all of your hate. Give me your anxiety. Give me the stuff that keeps you up at night. Give me the stuff that prevents you from seeing who you are. Just a beloved child of God. And I'll take it. And I'm going to put it in the ground. And you can move freely again. And this isn't an event that happens once in the desert for people who can afford it. This is a, a reality that is inaugurated in each moment. Therefore, it is subversive and alternative for the church to own their witness to a sacred reality other than the reality that our world has agreed to abide within. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to always pick it outside of Wall Street. It could be as subversive as owning Imago Dei, who you are and who we are together. Not included in the text is uh, the author's promise to Jacob in Jerusalem. In chapter, or verse 23, immediately after making this critique of idols, uh, the author writes, Sing heavens, for the Lord has acted. Shout depths of the earth. Burst out with a ringing cry, you mountain forest, and every tree in it. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and will glorify himself through Israel. And the Lord glorifies himself in you and in the little girl who I saw at the Christian Service Center. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.